Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here's episode 352 of Forgotten Classics, more of The Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee. First, though, I do not have a podcast highlight, but I do have a great audiobook to listen to. It's True Grit by Charles Portis, narrated by Donna Tart. T-A-R-T-T. Joseph, our friend from the Zombie Parents Guide, who read some stories for us a long time ago, but you can find them in the library if you scroll down toward the bottom, on Goodreads said he had just finished reading the book and it was so great that he couldn't believe he'd gone all this time without reading it. I've had that book recommended to me a variety of times. And... I didn't like the movie with John Wayne and Glen Campbell. That's not a good reason to not read it, but you know. And I did really like the Coen Brothers version that had, I think, was it Jeff Bridges and um, Matt Damon? But that also wasn't enough to make me read it. But you know, Joseph does such a good book review. He talked me into it. Luckily, the library had the audiobook. So I started listening, and I could not believe the narration is perfect. So perfect. And the book itself is funny, but not in a super obvious way. You just have to be listening. And so that in the context of what's going on, you just realize how outrageously self-willed Maddie is. And that's the girl who's telling this story to us. It's just so well done. It captures the feeling of people living in that time period. It captures what it was like to be in a place where there was no real law everywhere. Anybody could just shoot your father and disappear and maybe they wouldn't go get him. Maybe you would have to hire somebody like Rooster Cogburn who you wanted to be sure was going to bring him back. So anyway, I highly recommend it. It's not very long. It must not be a very long book anyway because I think it's only six or seven hours long maximum for audiobook and it is simply wonderful simply wonderful so I highly recommend it obviously and with that now let's get to our own book which is much different in tone but still told from an unexpected point of view that of Millie our female detective and we left Millie She was getting ready to go out to the countryside or the suburbs, really, on the train to go undercover as a seamstress in the house where she could investigate the emerald necklace disappearing. First, though, Molly, I'm not sure of her name, Skelton, Skelton, came for a scheduled visit. And we've seen before these scheduled visits that Millie has had with people who've been under her care, I guess we would say, to try to break them of the habits that might lead them into misdemeanors or other crimes. Molly's different. Everybody else we've seen is kind of finished up. They're grateful or they're kind of managing the end of it. How do I handle this kind of situation now that it's come up? Molly is tough. She doesn't want to cooperate. She's been under Millie's supervision for a year when a friend of hers only had to do it for three months. And the conversation they have is very interesting. And the way that Millie handles it and the way that Molly responds to her, I thought were really 
illuminating of all the different types of personalities and how Millie deals with them, especially when you take it into the context of the other people she's dealt with. So I really liked that section of it. And then I loved getting to see the suburbs through Millie's eyes. And it kind of took me back in time to when you would take the train and somebody'd send the car to pick you up and here are these lovely homes. And, you know, with the terrace around it and everything, I could just see sitting out there on a nice day having tea or some such thing. And the other thing I thought was interesting is Millie being in character as a seamstress. She's not just mending dresses. And first of all, it's odd that this woman only has one dress that she wears. That these days would never happen. You'd go, when do you wash it? What do you wear then? You know, kind of thing. But the other thing is that she's also mending under things. She's mending sheets. And it reminded me that we're so used to the stores where you just go buy new ones. You're not mending your under things. They're meant to be thrown away when they get holes in them or have worn out in some way. Sheets the same way. Why would you mend them? But all those things back then would have been made by a seamstress for you anyway, by hand. Or you would have made them yourself. So you would think about it completely differently. Anyway, I just kind of liked that view into that world. It was a bit different for me to think about that. And of course, then we have the asthmatic woman who makes desserts. <laughs> what a funny character. Not funny, haha, of course, but funny, odd. I'm looking forward to learning more about her. And hopefully you are too. So let's pick up our knitting. Do we remember where we left off so we can all take notes and keep track of the mystery? Okay, we're ready. Let's dive in. Chapter 12 Dinner over, Millie turned off the gas and opened the doors again and sat for a while in the half-dusk of the room knitting, wondering whether it would be well to make some pretense of work serve as an opportunity for a little talk with Mrs. Mason before going to bed. The sounds of dinner were long since over. Even the final stir of clearing away had subsided, and the butler's stout figure hovering through the lower rooms, turning off lights here and there, had withdrawn. The house had settled to quiet. If she went up to Mrs. Mason's room now, she could speak with her before she went to bed. She wanted to know about the woman who brought in her meals. The look in the woman's face teased and baffled her. A few casual words with Mrs. Mason might clear up the situation and leave her mind free for better uses. She rolled up her knitting and was putting it away when steps in the hall caught her ear. They passed on to the outer door at the end, and she heard the sound of the key turning in the lock, and then other steps hurrying down the hall, and words of subdued protest, and the woman's wheezy voice. "'Miss Annie's in her room.' She's tired, and she's going to bed. She told me to lock it. You know she don't lock this door open after she's in bed. The butler's voice acquiesced, and the steps retreated again, passing along the hall by her door. She sat a minute longer, waiting. Then she took up the pile of mending she had finished. She would leave it at Mrs. Mason's room on the way to bed. If things were favorable, she would talk with her for a few minutes. The door of the room was open as she approached, the light shining out into the hall, and she had raised her hand to rap lightly on the side of the door before she saw that the room was empty. The door of the dressing-room beyond was slightly ajar, 
and from the room came a muffled sound that caused her to withdraw her hand and stand motionless. The sound grew to a woman's voice crying softly in little wheezy sobs, "'I tell you, Miss Annie, I don't like her. I don't like her looks.' Then Mrs. Mason's voice in gentle expostulation, and the woman's voice again a little higher. "'You know how I am, Miss Annie, how I feel about folks. I don't like that woman in the house.' The voice rose higher and shriller, and Mrs. Mason's broke across it sharply. "'Hush, Margaret.' Then the voices dropped to a murmur. Millie crossed the room quickly. The pile of work on her arm must serve as an excuse if they came out. She must hear what was being said in the low, rapid tones that went on behind the half-closed door. It was Mrs. Mason speaking, and the tense words drove a little shock of surprise to Millie's listening ear. "'You must trust me, Margaret, to do what is best. It is all right. The woman is really a detective.' "'Oh, Miss Annie!' The voice wheezed and gasped, and was silent a little. "'Can't you send her away?' she pleaded softly. Her mistress's voice was firm. "'I do not wish to send her away. I want her to find the necklace.' "'But, Miss Annie, suppose she—' The voice dropped to a long, low murmur. "'Be quiet,' said her mistress sternly, and the voices dropped again to low, half-whispered words that not even Millie's trained ear could distinguish. She reached her hand to the door and rapped sharply. There was a sudden silence. Then, after a minute, the door opened slowly. Mrs. Mason stood in it, her loose gown gathered up to her breast, a half-frightened look on her pale face. When she saw who it was, the look vanished. It gave way to quick relief. "'Oh, it is you!' She whispered the words. "'Come in!' She reached out a hand and half drew the detective into the room, and closed the door upon them. The other woman, across the room, stood gazing sullenly at her under lowered lids. "'Come here, Margaret,' said her mistress. She spoke peremptorily, but when the woman crossed to her, she laid a hand on the clumsy shoulder almost affectionately, it seemed to the detective. "'Margaret Campbell,' she said quietly, "'cares for me more than any one in the world, I think.' The woman's face softened subtly under Milly's eye. "'She was afraid for me,' went on Mrs. Mason, smiling and patting the thick shoulder gently. "'And I have been telling her who you are. You need not mind her knowing. She is true as steel.' The woman lifted a quick glance to Millie's face. The hostility in it had given way, and a look of almost exultation replaced it. The dull eyes glowed a little. "'I knew you was something different,' she cried. "'I feel things here.' She put her ample hand on her wheezing chest and nodded slowly. "'I knew you was different,' she said. Millie looked at her quietly. "'You knew it when you opened the door this afternoon?' She motioned to the adjoining room, and the woman's quick eyes regarded her incredulously. "'Did you hear that?' she demanded. "'I saw it,' corrected Millie. "'I thought then it might be you. I hope you can keep a secret.' She was looking at her with direct glance. "'Margaret will not tell,' said her mistress quickly. "'I have known Margaret a long time. I would trust her with anything.' Something odd in the words caught Millie's ear. Hardly a breath, nothing she could define. The chief thing she was conscious of, standing and looking at the two women, so unlike in every way, was that some hidden bond existed between them, and that the servant could be trusted to be loyal to her mistress. She turned to her. "'You can help us,' she said, "'if you are trustworthy. I need to know about the others in the house, the other servants. 
you can tell me. The other servants are all right, said the woman sullenly. I do not doubt that, but I want to know about them, what connections they have outside the house, and I want to know everything that has happened in the house in the last three years. She spoke with slow emphasis. Was it fancy, or did a swift, half-frightened look flit from the woman to her mistress? "'You can go now,' said Mrs. Mason quietly. "'I was going to help you,' protested the woman. "'No, I do not need you any more to-night. Go now.' Her eyes followed the clumsy figure to the door. They turned to Milly. "'She is the soul of devotion,' she murmured. "'I can see that,' said Milly briefly. "'But why did she suspect me?' "'She is Scotch. She has premonitions. I suppose she is what is called psychic.' They both smiled at the incongruous word, and at the clumsy figure so ill-suited to it. But Mrs. Mason stayed her smile with a half-gesture of reproach. "'I am ashamed to laugh at her. She is like some great faithful animal. She stands guard over me, and nothing will ever hurt me that Margaret can prevent. She has been with me ever since I was a child. When I married and came here, they could not keep her from coming with me. At first she was cook and general maid, and then when we moved to this house, and there was more to do, and more servants, she became a kind of general housekeeper for me. She does what she chooses, practically. I depend on her entirely. I think if any danger or illness were coming to me, she would know it long before I should. But she suspects good as well as ill, apparently. She thought I was going to do you harm. She was looking intently at the woman, who flushed a little. She had a feeling, I suppose, that you are not what you appear to be and it troubled her. Yes, she made a mistake this time. She spoke a little wearily, and put up her hand to smooth back the hair that had fallen over her forehead. I am very tired, she said. I have wanted so much all day to talk with you. I keep thinking of things I must tell you. Tomorrow you shall tell me. You are tired now. You must go to bed. Very well. The woman spoke wearily. Then she leaned forward. Her manner changed subtly. "'You have not found anything yet, have you?' she asked it almost eagerly, and in her loose robe of wine-red silk, the loosened hair drooping a little about her face, and the quick light in her eyes, there was something vivid and strange. Milly had a sudden sense that a man would care to give jewels to a woman like this, fine-grained, polished, dull red stones that would flash with quick gleams when you lifted them in the light. "'You did not find anything?' said the woman again and Milly shook her head. "'It is not so easy as that, finding things. I wish it were. Sometimes I think it is as hard to catch a thief as to paint a picture or write a poem,' she said laughingly. "'A poem?' repeated the woman, with puzzled eyes. "'A poem?' "'Yes. For days you think and feel and look, and nothing happens. And then, all in a minute, you have it in your head, and your poem is done.' She laughed again. A little sound like a sigh sped from the woman's lips. "'I had not thought it was like that,' she said. "'I thought you measured foot-tracks and used a microscope and took away pieces of dust to analyze. That is what the others did.' "'Who were the others?' asked Milly. "'Mr. Corbin and his men. We had them in, you know.' "'Yes, Mr. Corbin is a skillful detective.' She added it almost defensively. "'That is what Mr. Mason said.' He was determined to have him, but he did not find anything. Milly could have fancied there was something almost exultant in the look she cast at her, but before she could question it, 
the look had faded, and the face in its loosened hair was only very tired, and a little wistful and tragic above the dull red robe. "'I will leave these,' said Milly. She deposited the pile of mended garments she still carried on her arm, and the woman looked at them almost helplessly. "'You work so fast,' she murmured. "'I cannot find enough to keep you busy.' "'Don't worry,' said Milly. "'I shall not work so hard to-morrow. I want to have a good talk with you, if we can be by ourselves without attracting attention.' A look of relief crossed the woman's face. "'I want so much to talk. There are things I have not told you. It will be easy to-morrow. My husband will be away all day. We have only to go to his room.' "'His room?' the library on this floor. She moved a hand toward the front of the house. I often sit there when he is away. It has soundproof walls and double doors. You cannot hear a sound in it. The memory of the muffled resonance from a closing door came back to Milly. Does your husband use the room when he is here? Always. He goes to it and shuts himself in. It has been like that for two years now. She held out her hands in a helpless gesture. "'Oh, you must help me,' she said. "'I shall help you,' said Milly. "'Already I begin to see things more clearly. "'Good night.' "'The woman's eyes searched and held her a little wistfully. "'Good night,' she said. "'And as Milly passed up the stairs to her room, "'the dark, vivid face followed her, "'and the eyes questioned her, half-doubtingly, "'and somewhere far in behind, it seemed to Milly, "'a look of fear hid itself.' Chapter 13 She was down early at her work, but early as she was, someone was before her. The door to the breakfast-room was closed. Through it she could hear faintly the sound of dishes or the clink of a spoon, but no voices. Margaret Campbell brought in her breakfast and arranged the dishes on the tray. Then she stood waiting, one hand on the back of Milly's chair, her friendly eyes surveying the tray to see if anything were lacking. Milly leaned back with a little motion of her lips, and the woman bent her head. Almost without sound, Milly shaped the words, "'Will Mrs. Mason come down to breakfast?' The woman made a gesture of assent toward the closed door. "'I want it open,' said Milly softly, and with a nod of comprehension, the woman passed to the door, moving with noiseless step and busying herself for a minute at the sideboard. She came out, leaving the door ajar behind her. Through the crack Milly could see the back and shoulders of the man at the table. The room was filled with sunshine. The man read his paper and turned it, and stopped to take a drink from his coffee cup and went on reading. All his movements were quick and nervous. Milly moved noiselessly from the table where her own breakfast waited. She took up her knitting and seated herself where she could see more easily into the sun-filled room. A mass of vines and flowers in the window made shadows on the white cloth, and the kettle with its blue flickering flame steamed gently. One could not fancy anything harsh or unpleasant touching the brightness of the room where the man read his paper and the kettle hummed softly over the blue flame. There was a little sound in the room beyond and the faint rustle of a woman's dress. The door opposite opened slowly. She seemed a little haggard to Milly in the morning light as she glanced half-wistfully at her husband and moved toward the table. He did not turn or look up. When she had seated herself behind the coffee urn, he turned his paper and glanced at her absently, as if first aware of her presence. "'Good morning,' she said. Her hands, hovering over the cups and spoons, trembled a little, and she pressed the electric bell by her plate, seeming to steady herself. If the man responded to her greeting, Milly did not hear the words. 
He laid down his napkin a little deliberately and got up, creasing his paper in quick folds. She glanced up. "'Are you through, Oswald?' Her voice had a note of surprise. He nodded brusquely. "'I have a busy day.' He moved toward the door and paused and looked back. "'Bradley is going to send out a car this morning, if you want to see it.' He waited her answer, not looking at her. She was pouring cream into her cup, and she set down the pitcher quickly. "'When will it be here?' she asked. "'About eleven. "'And you are not going into town?' Millie felt the anxiety that tinged the question, but if the man felt it, he gave no sign. "'I shall go back with the car, after we've looked it over.' "'And stay all day?' "'Probably.' He raised his eyes and caught sight through the door of the sewing-room of a woman knitting. Her eyes were following the flying needles, and her head was a little bent. He gave a gesture of surprise, and turned to his wife, moving his hand and lowering his voice a little. "'Who is that, in there?' He stood looking down, listening to the hurried explanation. "'How long will she be here?' he asked. "'A few days. You don't mind, do you, Oswald?' "'Of course not,' he said brusquely. He went quickly out. Milly put aside her knitting, and brought her tray to the table and began her breakfast. Through the half-open door she could see Mrs. Mason giving directions to the maid who had come in response to her bell. When Mrs. Mason finished her breakfast, she paused on her way out, at the door of the sewing-room. The maid in the room behind could be heard clinking cups. Milly made a little gesture, and Mrs. Mason stepped into the room. "'I am ready to work on your dress today,' said Milly. The words were clear and distinct, and carried to the room beyond, but her glance made a little signal, and Mrs. Mason's hand on the door drew it together behind her as she came in. "'It is all right,' said Milly. The low, even tone might have been proposing a new pattern or discussing gores and seams. There will be plenty of time after eleven. Meantime, I want to see the servants. Can you manage for Margaret to be free if I want her? It is so annoying. This morning of all others, said the woman excitedly. Why should he stay at home? The clinched hands at her sides trembled a little. Why should he stay? Does he suspect something? Hush, said Milly. Your nerves are unstrung. Isn't it natural he should want you to see the car before he buys it? Oh, yes. The voice stifled with the words. Yes, I know I am foolish. But it has been so long, and everything is so different. You saw him. She motioned toward the closed door. You saw how he hurried, just now, to get away from me. Her hands made a little tragic gesture. Then they covered her eyes swiftly, and Milly saw the tears pressing behind them. Listen, you will hamper me if you are excited and nervous. She spoke with decision, and the woman took down her hands. She smiled a little wanly. "'I do not see why I should be like this. I think it is because since you came I am beginning to hope, and I am afraid, too.' She spoke in a half-whisper, with her glance on the door, behind which they could hear the maid moving about softly. She turned to Milly. "'I shall be brave. You will see. I am going to tell Margaret to come at once for your tray. I shall not be like this again. You will see.' She nodded brightly and went out. Through the French window Milly could see Mr. Mason crossing the terrace toward the garage. In the adjoining room the maid had finished her work and gone out. The quiet and peace of the sunshine outside seemed to pervade the house. When Margaret came for the tray she motioned her to sit down. "'I want to ask you about one or two things,' she said, "'and this is a good time. Are the servants in the house now the same ones who were here two years ago, when the emeralds disappeared?' The woman's face seemed suddenly to pale. She sat down with a half-frightened look and closed her lips firmly. But in spite of the pressure of her will on them, they trembled a little. "'You need not be afraid,' said Milly kindly. 
Mrs. Mason wants you to tell me anything you know. She will be happier when we have solved this mystery than she has been for a long time. You must help me, Margaret. The woman gulped a little, and looked at her without speaking. Then her eyes filled slowly with tears. They had a grotesque, pathetic look in the fat face. "'Tell me,' said Milly, "'was the butler here, then?' "'Batson? Yes, Batson was here. And Katie, she's the parlour-maid, she was here. And Cook, Mrs. Batson, she was here. And me. And that's all.' Milly checked them rapidly in her mind. "'Are there any new ones?' "'The scullery. She's new.' "'And there are gardeners?' Milly glanced through the window toward the garden and the lawn that stretched away to the trees. A horse-driven lawn-mower was clicking busily across it. "'There's three of them, besides the head-gardener, Simpson. And there's the chauffeur. He's new. But they all live outside. They're never in the house. Could they slip in from the outside, perhaps at meal-time, without being seen?' "'It wouldn't be easy, not with me around,' said the woman proudly. "'I'm always somewhere. I guess they all know that.' She smiled a little grimly. She was sitting erect, a hand on either knee, and the hands were clinched a little. "'I've always took care of Miss Annie and of Miss Annie's things,' she said. "'No thief could get into this house from the outside without me knowing it.' She said the words slowly, and she paled a little under Milly's eye, as if she had been carried further than she meant. "'It was somebody inside, then,' said Milly quietly. "'I didn't say it,' cried the woman. "'No, and we won't say it, yet.' Milly was thinking swiftly. How could I see the butler in some natural way? Batson, Margaret considered it. Well, he's around in the mornings, back and forth. He doesn't serve breakfast? No, that's Katie. Suppose I wanted another table for sewing. Would Batson be the one to bring it? If his rheumatism wasn't too bad, conceded Margaret. How is his rheumatism today? asked Milly, smiling. The last time I heard him complain was week before last, said Margaret weather like this he's pretty comfortable i guess the sound of the lawn-mower that had been clicking busily ceased suddenly and milly's glance following it saw that it had halted at the edge of the wide lawn mr mason was standing beside it talking with the driver margaret's eye rested on them a minute and turned away something hostile in it caught milly's glance mr mason is staying at home this morning she said casually it's no comfort to any one if he stays or he don't stay muttered the woman. Milly looked at her keenly. "'What do you mean by that, Margaret?' The woman turned sullenly. "'If you'd seen my Miss Annie when we first come here, beautiful, and always laughing and happy!' Her tongue seemed suddenly loosened, and her heavy face became alive. "'There was never anybody like her, I tell you. Just something about her made you feel as if you wanted to lie down and let her walk over you. And he felt it.' She moved her hand contemptuously to the distant figure. There wa'n't anything he wouldn't do for Miss Annie then, or buy for her. Jewels! You should see the things he bought her, like a queen. She sat looking at it, a great rebellion smouldering in her eyes. And now, said Milly softly, the look broke. And now, she blazed, he treats her like a dog. Do you mean he is unkind to her? Not to speak to her, not to notice if she comes in or goes out. Is that unkind? she mimicked. He goes to his room and locks the door on her unkind she repeated scornfully and yet he looks like a man who has suffered said milly thoughtfully oh suffered and haven't we all suffered she cried and no one to tell what the trouble is or how to set it right that is what i am here for you know perhaps before i go margaret something will come back to this house something of the old happiness and love 
as it was when Miss Marion was home, said the woman eagerly, as if she saw it again. Always somebody coming and going, running through the hall out there, or calling up the stairs. Or maybe Miss Marion hurrying up to her room and calling, Come and help me, Margaret. We're going for a picnic. And many's the time we had the terrace here, thick with people, and tables for tea, and bats and hurrying to serve them all. Or maybe hampers carried out to the tennis court, there, under the trees. Everybody was happy then. Yes, and everybody will be happy again, said Milly cheeringly. Not Miss Marion. A great tear rolled down her cheek, and she did not lift her hand to brush it aside. She was the happiest, she said softly. She had a way like sunshine with her. No, we cannot bring her back to life, but we can make Mrs. Mason less lonely, perhaps. The woman's face lighted, and she lifted a hand swiftly, brushing away the tears. If you can do that for her, I'll bless you till the longest day I live, she said solemnly. And that will be a long while, I hope, responded Milly, laughing. Now, can you find Batson for me? I think I'll have him move that secretary. She eyed the heavy piece of mahogany furniture that stood by the sidewall. I want to put my sewing-table there, to get a better light on it. Margaret looked at the massive piece of furniture. She shook her head. Batson won't like it, she said. He won't like doing it, and he won't like the idea. A heavy piece like that. Well, send him in. We will see. And as she waited for Batson, she was conscious of a little feeling of thankfulness that Batson was a man, not only because he would probably be strong and could move the secretary for her, but because, whatever his defects, he was not likely to weep. She had a refreshing sense of the stolidity of Batson's figure seen through the distant doorway. She would not need to keep Batson long or question him closely. A few minutes would probably suffice. CHAPTER Fourteen. She heard a heavy tread in the hall, and she turned her back and stood surveying the secretary. Years ago she had come on the discovery that nothing heartens a possible criminal like the chance to look you over first, and nothing is more likely to throw him off his guard. Whenever possible, she presented a view of herself for deliberate inspection. She had learned, too, not to flash too sudden a look at a man when at last she turned to him. She merely let her glance slide by him casually. If later the glance returned and dwelt on him for a minute, he did not seem to think it necessary to arrange a rigid countenance for inspection. One of the curious things about people under suspicion, whether innocent or guilty, that often puzzled Milly, was this deep instinctive desire to present to her a countenance void of all meaning. She did not understand it altogether, but she accepted and allowed for it. Batson's footsteps, slow and a little important, came nearer, and she went over to the secretary and stood looking up at it reflectively. When the tread entered the room, she spoke over her shoulder, carelessly, without looking back. "'Do you think you could move this secretary for me, or is it too heavy?' Batson's figure had come alongside. She could feel him, looking at the sewing-woman who had summoned him in this autocratic fashion. "'Is it too heavy to be moved?' she asked doubtfully. "'Not for you, Miss Newberry,' said Batson's voice deeply. She wheeled and stared. "'Mr. Batson!' she cried softly. She held out her hand. He took it in embarrassed friendliness. "'You are the last person,' she said. "'I hope I see you well, ma'am,' responded Batson. "'Yes, thank you. How is Sadie?' His stolid face lighted. "'You should see her, Miss Newberry,' he said almost eagerly. She nodded. "'I should like to.' "'She come out last week,' went on Batson, "'to see me and her mother.' She's a new girl, Miss Newberry. She's got sense. Batson's hands spread themselves, 
and laid the sense before her largely. "'Good,' said Milly. "'I always believed it would come.' "'Yes. I know you was always saying to us to have patience with her. But she was terrible trying, with all them dancing ideas, and on the go, day and night. And when it came to that last time, and you caught her, with the goods on her—' Batson lowered his voice and glanced cautiously at the doors behind him. "'Well, I'll own, ma'am, I give up.' He looked down at her in grateful disbelief. "'I never knew to this day how you done it,' he said solemnly, "'but somehow you got her by the skittish place.' His face grew thoughtful. "'I've wondered since then, ma'am, whether all young folks, maybe, don't come to a skittish place like that?' "'They surely do, Mr. Batson,' said Milly, laughing. "'And if you get them by it, they'll run steady for a long time, perhaps till they're as old as you or me.' Batson's eye twinkled. "'That's what I said to myself.' steer em by i says with blinders or most any way that comes handy and they'll live straight forever after seems as if most people had to have a time like that sooner or later it's like the mumps or measles and the sooner you're over it the better milly laughed out you speak as if you knew all about it batson did you ever have an attack well ma'am i won't say i wasn't once there or thereabouts he replied modestly ellen will be wanting to see you he added as if by chance the two ideas lay near together in his mind. Milly put out a hand. "'No, don't tell Ellen I am here. Keep it a secret for a little while, please. And don't forget that to Ellen and the others I am Miss Brigham, who is doing some sewing for Mrs. Mason.' He looked at her keenly. "'You're here after your old work,' he said. And after a minute, "'It's them emeralds,' he declared. She nodded. "'Damn em, said Batson fervently. "'I beg your pardon, ma'am.' but if you knew what this house has been through, owing to them emeralds, you'd say the same, and more. She smiled. I'm sure I would. Tell me about it. About their disappearing? You know they disappeared, don't you? That's what you're here for? Yes, but I only know they disappeared. Hardly more than that. It would help me very much to know how the whole thing appeared to a sensible man like you. If you can spare the time to tell me. Batson expanded a little. Oh, I can spare the time. He glanced at the secretary. "'Maybe we'd better move that first, he suggested. "'No, that was only an excuse to see the butler. Go on, please.' Batson chuckled. "'Well, I must say, I never suspected who you was. Not from the first minute you come. When Ellen was making words about having to fix up a tray three times a day, I said to her, "'For the Lord's sake, Ellen, if there's anything Miss Mason takes an interest in, let her have it. But I no more suspected than a babe unborn, when you sent for me, that you was another one of them detectives.' Batson relaxed to the delight of free speech. "'You don't know what I suffered with them, Miss Newberry, them detectives. Why, some of em pretty near put me through the third degree before they was done with me. There was one spell there. I kind of had to make up things. Seems as if nothing else would satisfy em, really.' "'Well, I'm not going to put you through the third degree, and it will be a comfort to know that I can trust you and rely on what you say.' "'Same to you, ma'am,' said Batson. "'I've had a feeling some days here that you couldn't trust anybody.' why there was one day i got to wondering if maybe ellen had done it he looked at her askance and shook his head i don't ever want to feel much worse than i felt that day i guess sit down said milly and tell me everything batson tiptoed to the window and looked importantly out we don't want to be seen talking together he said cautiously and milly smiled at the far-off echo of the corbin methods repeated with the muffled emphasis of batson's expansive calm he looked to right and to left and he leaned forward and peered out through the window. A horn sounded among the trees. "'Maybe the new car,' said Batson. 
Then his face lost interest. "'It's the mail, ma'am. Excuse me, please. I'll have to get it.' He stepped out of the window and hurried across the terrace, with bulky importance, and down the steps to the car, holding up his hands for the budget of mail the postman doled out. When he turned back, his hands overflowing with papers and letters, he did not return to the sewing-room, but passed directly to the front of the house. He deposited the mail on the hall table, bending over and arranging it in neat little piles, and stopping now and then to peer down at a letter or card before his fingers released it. One letter he held for a full minute, before he laid it on the pile. He lifted his head and looked toward the stairs. Mrs. Mason was coming swiftly down, and he handed her the letter he had just placed on its pile. She tore it open with eager fingers and stood reading it breathlessly. Batson went on sorting letters, glancing now and then with a kind of respectful sympathy at his mistress's absorbed face. He gathered up a small handful of the sorted mail and departed to the back of the house. Mrs. Mason, standing by the hall table, read on and turned a page hastily, and broke away with a little gesture to seize a parasol from the rack by the stairs. She passed swiftly out of the open door. Milly saw her cross the terrace and beckon to her husband, who had finished talking with the man on the machine and was coming toward the terrace. The rapid clicking of the machine resuming its course across the lawn came to Milly's ear as she watched the man and woman meet on the edge of the terrace. The woman held up the open page, speaking rapidly, and the man reached his hand to it. From her place in the window, Milly could see the look of the wife bent upon him eagerly, with waiting happiness. The reddish glow cast by the parasol on her head and shoulders gave her a radiant look, but the glow in her face seemed to come as much from some inner light as from some without. The man finished the letter and handed it back to her, and they stood a minute talking. Then she turned back to the house. It seemed to Milly, as she came toward her, that the face had lost a little of its warm glow. But when the woman looked up and saw the seamstress through the window, she nodded with a little smile and came toward her, holding up the letter. "'My boy is coming,' she called, even before she reached the window. "'Stephen is coming. I have not seen him for a year.' She stood outside the window, the parasol behind her head and shoulders, lighting her radiantly. "'I cannot believe it,' she said softly. "'When does he come?' asked Milly. She opened the letter in her hand. The mere action seemed to give her pleasure. "'The ninth, he says. That's to-morrow, isn't it? I shall arrive the ninth. He didn't say what train. I must go and tell Margaret. There will be so much to do.' She nodded happily and moved away. Even her step was different, it seemed to Milly, watching her as she passed out of sight. And presently, through the whole house, ran quickening life. Doors opened and closed, feet hurried, Voices rose, a little excited and eager, and called to each other up and down the stairs. The son of the house was coming home. Milly sewed a little while, then she took up her knitting. She was glad of the advent of the sun. She had been gazing into a deep, dusky pool, trying to pierce through the obscurity to something that lay hidden beneath, deep in the slime and ooze, perhaps, or floating free and nearer to the surface, if she could focus her eyes to it. And now, as if over her shoulder, someone had cast a stone into the pool, and the ripples were spreading on every side. No use to look while the surface was disturbed like this. Perhaps when the disturbance ceased, and the pool subsided, a ray of sunshine would strike across it, and she would see for a minute deep into it. She only hoped Batson would not be too busy to come to her. She wanted to hear the story of the theft from Batson's lips. 
she had an idea that Batson's view of it would be more revealing than that of many more intelligent persons, and she could trust him to give her the truth, as far as he knew it. The last time she had seen Batson, his face had been blanched with fear and filled with a look of pathetic, wounded pride. He had come, with his daughter, at Millie's request, to the uptown office. The girl had been taking petty articles of finery from a dry-goods shop. The case had been put in Millie's hands, with the usual stipulation on her part that the culprit, when discovered, should be hers to deal with. The result had been Batson and his daughter in the uptown office, Batson shivering with misery and possible disgrace, the girl a little flippant and defiant. That was nearly two years ago. She had known that the father and mother were in service in the country, but she had not known where. She had called in the father only because something in the girl's attitude when she spoke of him suggested to her that the fear of hurting her father might have influence with her. The guess had proved a happy one. The sight of her father's abject humiliation had seemed to steady the girl like a shock. Millie had no fear that Batson would not serve her in every way he was capable of. If what he was able to tell her was of little use, it would not be Batson's fault. She saw him through the distant rooms, hurrying about and giving directions, guiding his staff with anxious and important air. Presently he approached the door of the sewing-room and looked in. "'I am free now, madam, for a little while, if you would like me to tell you what we were speaking of,' he said discreetly. Millie nodded, and he came in with deft clumsiness, closing and locking the door, and moving to the other doors and locking them in swift succession. He crossed to the window and looked out in either direction. Millie, watching him, smiled at the elaborate reminder of the Corbin method. Batson spoke to her over his shoulder from his place at the window. "'If anyone comes to the door, ma'am, I'll slip out here while you're unlocking it, and nobody can get at us this way without me seeing them.' He waved his hand across the open space. "'If anybody steps on the terrace, I'll slip all the door before they're on to me.' Millie nodded with amused eyes. "'That sounds safe. I was afraid you might not be able to come.' with all the preparation for the son's arrival. He turned to her. You have heard, then? Mrs. Mason told me. She had taken up her knitting and was absorbed in complicated stitches. Batson sighed. I hope it's a good thing, his coming. He sighed again and looked at her a little askance. Sit down, won't you? said Milly. He sat down, half facing the window, his glance free to cover the range outside. He placed his hands across the amplitude of his stomach, as far as it permitted, and leaned back and sighed again reflectively. "'I don't hardly know where to begin,' he said. "'Why not begin at the beginning?' "'Well, I guess the beginning was about five years back, when me and Ellen first come here. Miss Mason had seen us at the employment office, and she liked us, and we liked her. We knew there was four in the family we was coming to work for, a son and a daughter. We didn't know till we got here that the daughter was adopted, and we shouldn't have known then except for the other servants.' The father and mother treated her more like their own than most folks do. She had her little riding horse and clothes, and about everything a girl could have. Jewelry? asked Millie quietly. She had just turned the row and was adjusting her needle. She was not noticing him. Patson regarded her slowly. I don't know as I ever thought of that before. I don't believe she did have many jewels. Mr. Mason was always buying them and giving them to his wife. She'd be wearing a new ring or pin or something every day or two but I don't seem to remember as Miss Marion ever had more than one or two little trinkets. He seemed to consider it a minute. It couldn't have been because they stinted her. She had everything, and more, too. I reckon it might have been because he wanted to keep something special for his wife. He was always fond of his wife. Was? 
repeated Millie. Batson looked a little embarrassed. Well, ma'am, it seems a queer thing to say about the folks you're working for, and not being supposed to notice anything that goes on, but it does seem as if Mr. Mason had changed a good deal. How has he changed? What do you call changed? asked Millie. Going to his room and shutting himself up, hours at a time, said Batson. That's what I'd call changed. Why, it used to be. He couldn't bear to let her out of his sight, not hardly. When did he begin to change? Could you tell that? It was along about the time the trouble come on, I guess. He spoke slowly, as if trying to place the things he recalled. Pretty soon after we heard there'd been a robbery in the house. It must have been, that I first begun to notice anything queer. And when was that? Two years ago. Just about this time of year it was. Miss Mason called me up to her room one day. She was sitting by the window, and I could see she had been crying. Things was all kind of tumbled up, as if folks had been hunting and mussing about the room. And she said to me, she says, Batson, something very unhappy has come to us. Them was just her words, ma'am. My emerald necklace has disappeared, she said. I just stood with my mouth open, looking at her. Batson shook his head slowly. I didn't mistrust anything then. But afterward I see that the detective must have been watching me all the time from the dressing-room door. He smiled shrewdly. Well, he didn't see anything, but me standing there looking like a dumb fool. Then, after a minute, Miss Mason told me the detectives was there in the next room searching, and that they wanted to talk with me when they was through. She told them they'd better question me, but I was not to tell the others. I reckon she always trusted me, whether the detectives did or not. Well, when they came out, they questioned me, uphill and down, and after that, as I told you, they kept it up, having me in every day or two and tackling me. Of course the other servants got wind of it. You can't have men in, ripping up your carpets and measuring windows and running up and down stairs without folks getting to know something is up. But they did not discover anything? Not so far as I know, said Batson. I don't believe they ever really got a notion of how the thing was done, or knew anything more about it than I did. He shook his head gloomily, and his eyes gazing through the window seemed to look upon something incredible and unsolved. You never saw a house change the way this did after that said Batson slowly. Miss Marion got a kind of pindlin' and unhappy, and finally she went away. Nothing was ever said that she wasn't coming back, and her room was always ready for her upstairs, fire laid and some of her little things around, but she never did come back. He looked at the detective. You know she died a couple of weeks ago? Yes, I knew Mrs. Mason was in mourning for her. Yes, she's in mourning for her, said the old butler. His glance rested on hers a minute, and looked hastily away. Everything went wrong after that, he said. Mr. Stephen, he finally left home and went out west. He'd been keeping pretty steady, too, for a while. He was kind of a high buck, explained the old man simply. I reckon he tried all he could, but he couldn't seem to stand it any longer. I don't know as I blame him, either, he added after a little pause in which he seemed to turn it over. Why not? asked Milly curiously. Well, I felt some of that way myself, said Batson as if somebody was always watching and suspecting me, and always waiting for something that was going to happen. Only it never did. It weren't any real thing, either, just the way things felt when you went around the house. Of course, I've got used to it now. Some days I don't hardly know I'm feeling that way. But this morning, when the news come, and seeing Miss Mason's look, and the way she went stepping around the house so light, it brought it all back to me somehow. And then, knowing you was here on the same old business, I've been remembering how things used to be. "'You've made me see it very clearly, Batson. I thank you,' said Milly. "'You're welcome, I'm sure. It seems as if I'd kind of jumbled things together, telling them, 
but that's the way they seemed to me in my mind all kind of jumbled up i never could see straight what it was happened it seemed as if there was always some little thing that was hid that i couldn't see and if i could see it it would make a difference you have given me just what i wanted said milly i don't want to keep you any longer i know you are busy to-day thank you ma'am he got to his feet i heard a car just now i shouldn't wonder if it's the new one they're talking about buying he looked at his watch and off through the trees and a beautiful car flashed into sight speeding noiselessly up the drive i guess i'll go out and have a look at her said batson he stepped softly through the window then he turned and looked back better unlock them doors he said with a gesture of mysterious and efficient caution as he moved away chapter fifteen it was nearly an hour before the new car passed swiftly down the driveway with mr mason on the back seat milly watched it out of sight and turned to the door margaret stood in it looking at her significantly miss annie says will you please to come up now and see about her dress she said it circumspectly and stepped a little into the room to make way for the parlour-maid who was passing through the hall behind her she'd like it if you'd come right away please she added and the seamstress rose dropping her knitting into the bag on her arm and followed her into the hall she's up in her room said margaret i'm going up too she moved aside and allowed the sewing woman to precede her in the upper hallway mrs mason waiting by the door of her room a look of eager impatience on her face reached out to milly as she came up and drew her swiftly along the hall toward the front of the house margaret will keep watch she said come in here she had entered the library drawing the seamstress with her and she closed both doors carefully behind them milly noted that the doors were of oak and highly polished and very thick the bookcases built into the room allowed a generous space between the outer and inner door the woman moved softly across the thick rug to the fire that blazed on the hearth sit down she said quickly she drew one of the large leather chairs nearer to the fire but she did not seat herself in it but stood with one hand on the mantel looking down at milly her face was flushed and her eyes were filled with a little light of trembling happiness the hand on the mantel seemed to press on it as if to steady itself oh i thought he would never go she said breathlessly and i have so much to say to you i want to talk to you before stephen comes think of it to-morrow her eyes gazing deep into milly's had a strange look almost of apprehension to-morrow she repeated softly yes i am glad for you oh you cannot know she spoke hurriedly no one can know what it has been day after day month after month and never to see him milly looked from the woman's flushed face to a picture that stood near it on the mantel she made a little motion to it with a look of question and the woman turned to it swiftly she took it in her hands and gazed at it and handed it to her quickly can you imagine what it would be to have a son like that and not see him not even to know she stopped abruptly and pressed her lips together milly looked at her gently you need not hide from me she said no i shall tell you everything assented the woman i want to milly studied the photograph a minute and placed it on the table beside her where she could see it as she leaned back in her chair she would have the son's face before her while the mother told her story he has an open face she said half to herself the woman relaxed subtly to it a little sob stole to her lips and broke through in quick words oh he is true he is true no one who knows him could doubt it no i am sure of that how long has he been away from home a year last month 
think of it a whole year and he had scarcely been away in his life we were always together and always such friends even when he was a child we talked over our plans with him we called him little brother there was no other child you know a shadow flitted in her face and she went on quickly then we adopted marian and we were four children instead of three i think we kept younger than most fathers and mothers i was not old two years ago she leaned against the mantel and her shoulders seemed to droop a little as if she were suddenly tired sit down said milly motioning to the chair across the hearth but she shook her head impatiently annoyed to break the thread that was recalling the past to her it was when marian left us she went on intently it was then everything changed i think my husband grew so strange to me she halted a minute and then went swiftly on as if fearing to stop he shut me out of his life he is a stranger to me here in our home she moved her hand with a little gesture of fierceness are you sure the change came then when she went away asked milly she paused as if the idea arrested her then she shook her head it was then i first knew she seemed to hold it perhaps he was different before that a little different everything was changed by the robbery the detectives in and out the home sense was gone yes our home was really broken up before she went she said it consideringly yet i always think of the change as having come the day she left i remember so well that morning my husband shut himself alone in his room all day i did not see him stephen had gone with marian into town to see her off and i was alone she shuddered a little i had never been alone in my life i do not mean physically alone you understand but in my heart there had always been my mother and then oswald but that day there was no one in the world i thought my heart would break she looked at milly and there was a strange passion in her eyes as if the memory of that day haunted them i know they say hearts do not break she said but sometimes there is a pain her hand clutched the black dress on her bosom sometimes it is like a consuming flame here she said swiftly then you do wrong to think of it said milly practically sit down i want you to tell me everything you can remember about the necklace how your husband came to give it to you and when it was where everything about it there may be something important some little thing that will give me the clue i want if you can remember if i can remember repeated the woman with a wan smile i cannot forget she sank into the chair and covered her eyes a minute then she looked up wearily you are right she said in thinking there was something important in his giving it to me though many people would not think it so but oswald and i have always been close in spirit and we both knew his giving it meant something significant in our life though we did not put it into words the emeralds were his words i think my husband chose to speak in jewels instead of words she said it with a faint smile he is not an ordinary man he is like a poet she glanced about the walls crowded with books every shelf and table filled with them this room has been our life she said slowly when we built the house he planned this room for us both it must be on this floor he said where i could come to it easily instead of down below where other people have libraries he wanted me to be always near him and when he was away i sat here with my work or my book then the baby came and my husband brought a new chair and placed it for me there where you are sitting it was low and roomy with little rockers and i always nursed the baby in it and sat there and played with him he was a part of our life in this room she sat staring before her seeing the distant picture of the baby in the room and milly was touched with a strange wonder 
at the poetry and the life her words revealed. She wondered a little whether all men and women have this sealed fountain of poetry and longing that only wells up to the light when some harsh blow breaks the seal and it gushes out. They sat in silence, looking into the fire, and after a little the woman's voice went on. I was sitting there one day, with Stephen in my arms, crooning to him. He had been nursing, and had fallen asleep, and I had not disturbed him. I was looking down at his little head. You know how soft and beautiful they are. She cast a sweet look at the other woman. And I was filled with happiness, not thinking, but just looking down at him and happy, when I heard a step at the door, and then his voice, Don't move. He came over here, to the firelight, with something in his hands, and held it up, and the glints in the stones struck out and startled me. He stood there playing with it, and making it shine toward me and the child. It seemed as if the colors flashed back and forth across us when he turned it in his hands. He was like a child himself, she said with a sigh. Her voice had grown half tender. And then, at last, he came over to me, and stood above me and dropped it down on my neck, and the lowest link came down to my breast, close to the child's head. I could see it gleam there when I looked down. But he said again, Don't move, don't touch. And he went across and sat down and looked at us a long time. Just looked, with his eyes half closed, till it seemed as if I were wrapped in a flame of light. The eyes and the gaunt face raised themselves slowly and looked at Milly. You have never been married? she asked gently. And when Milly made a quiet, gray gesture of negation, the woman's eyes held her thoughtfully as if her memory spoke in them. "'It is very wonderful, all that part of life,' she said. The words seemed remote and untouched, and she looked down at the slightly reddened knuckles in her lap, and rubbed them a little, and clasped her hands. "'I did not dream then that the jewels would one day make me suffer. I saw only my husband's eyes, and felt the child's head against my breast. And by and by he came over and knelt by me, and gathered us to him almost fiercely, and whispered to me, that he would always keep me like that. Nothing should change. There should be only the child and me. He would give me everything in the world. We would travel, and I should always be close to him. He wanted nothing in the world but me, as I looked with the firelight shining on me and on the jewels. She shivered a little. I shall never forget the words. A woman could not forget them, with his low voice and his eyes on me. They seemed to pierce me till I shriveled under them. Something strange and unhappy seemed close to me. I wanted to tear off the jewels, throw them away, but he would not let me. He kept whispering, You are mine, with my emerald shining on you. The woman gasped a little. She was leaning back in her chair, her face very pale. The tears were stealing down. Presently her lips moved, and Milly bent to catch the half-breathed words. I have been punished, she said softly. I have paid for my jewels, yes. She brushed aside the tears and sat up. Even then I knew. She was speaking almost fiercely. I knew. I longed for other children, to hear them running and playing with Stephen, in the hall out here, and in the garden. She seemed to listen a moment to the voices that had not come to her. Then she went on quietly. I did not tell Oswald. It was not till long after, one day, I begged him to let me adopt a child, a little girl. So Marion came to us. She was only a little younger than Stephen, and they were like brother and sister together. I used to sit for hours at a time, not moving or thinking, just listening to their voices at play. She drew a long breath. That is how the necklace came to me. 
she said in a different tone. I did not wear it often in society. It was far too expensive for us, more expensive than we had any right to. I often put it on at home when we were alone, or we held it in our hands here in the firelight and watched it sparkle and change. My husband justified his extravagance. He said it was an investment instead of stocks and bonds. I think we enjoyed it more than most people enjoy their stocks and bonds, she said with a little smile. She sat looking dreamily into the fire. Perhaps the stone still gleamed there for her faintly. "'And this necklace was stolen?' asked Millie quietly. She started from her dream. "'It disappeared, I told you.' Her eyes turned to the photograph on the table. She looked at it a long time, intently, and the eyes of the picture seemed to return the look. She glanced away from them with a little helpless gesture. "'There is something I have not told you,' she said. "'Yes?' The word waited without comment, but the woman seemed to find it impossible to speak. "'It is Stephen,' she said at last. She motioned to the picture. "'But you must not think, you must not suspect, if I tell you. Nobody can be certain.' She threw it out defensively. "'I shall not suspect,' said Milly. "'That is not my business. I only want to know the facts. But this fact does not mean what it seems to. That is why I have been so frightened and anxious.' She leaned forward. "'You know that Stephen was in a bank in town before he left home?' She whispered the words. "'Yes, was there trouble?' She shook her head. "'Nothing that was ever known, but my son overran his salary. He was extravagant, like his father,' she added with a little sad smile. "'He had debts, and he borrowed three thousand dollars from the bank.' She said the last words quickly, and stared at the detective as if challenging her thought. Milly returned the look with a smile. "'No, I am not thinking anything. Go on.' Who knew of his borrowing the money? Only me and Marion, she said softly. She looked at her again, still with the little defensive glance. Did he tell you both of it? He did not tell anyone. He expected, of course, to return it in a day or two. Of course, assented Milly dryly. But Marion came to know. She called at the bank one night to drive him home. She came in quietly. At first she thought there was no one there, and then she saw Stephen in the safe with his back to her. He was taking out some bills. She saw him crowd them down into his pocket and reach again, and then she turned and hurried out. She was in a panic that he might hear her or see her, but she got out safely, and in a few minutes she went back for him. She said he looked so happy and innocent when she came back that she thought it must be a bad dream. She worried about it till she was nearly ill, and then at last she told me— the mother sat staring before her. "'And then?' said Milly. She moved and lifted her eyes. "'A week later,' she said slowly, "'the necklace disappeared.' They waited a minute in silence. "'And you believe Marion stole the necklace and got the money for your son?' said Milly. The woman hesitated. "'I have always believed she took it,' she said. There was a soft tapping sound somewhere in the room, and they started. The woman cowered in her chair, looking behind her with frightened eyes. "'It is someone at the door,' said Milly. She motioned to the inner door with its heavy, polished surface, and the tapping came again, a little louder. The color flashed back to the woman's face. "'It is Margaret,' she said swiftly. She would not let anyone else come to the door, except over her dead body. She laughed a little tremulously, and hurried to the door and opened it. "'Luncheon, Margaret, very well.' We did not hear the gong, 
I will come. She turned back to Milly in her chair by the hearth. Could you have your luncheon with me? she asked almost pleadingly. I dread to sit down there alone, with all the memories I have called up. You must be brave, said Milly. She touched her arm, soothing her. Be brave a little longer. The servants would think it strange for you to have the sewing-woman into luncheon. Go and eat your luncheon, and then come to the sewing-room, and we will get to work on the dress and make it fit you. She smoothed the wrinkles on the black shoulder gently. We must not wait too long, she remarked, or happiness may get ahead of us, and it will not need to be changed. The woman looked at her gratefully a minute. Then she left the room with quiet step. When she had gone, Milly took the photograph from the table. She studied it, holding it from her, and placed it on the mantel and looked at it again. The open, boyish face looked back at her, revealing nothing. 